Ecclesiastes is in the wisdom literature. Everyone say wisdom literature. The wisdom literature makes up five books in the Old Testament. Job, you guys all want to have that life, right? For those of you church people who know what Job is like. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then, of course, my favorite, the Song of Songs. Oh, what a book. If you've never studied the Song of Songs, it was one of the first books I studied as a follower of Christ because my youth pastor said, there's a whole book in the Bible devoted to sex. So I went to the table of contents and I looked up sex and it wasn't there. And then I found out that it was called the Song of Songs and I went there and it was, it was crazy. I don't recommend any of you teenage boys reading it because it will not make sense. And if you use the pickup lines in the Song of Songs, it will go very, very badly. If your first date, you talk to your woman and you say, hey, your tower is like, your neck is the Tower of David. And your, your belly, it's a heap of wheat. And your teeth, they're like freshly shorn sheep. I mean, you could try it, but I just don't recommend it. So in the wisdom literature, there, there's a theme that runs through these books. And, and we just have to talk about it because our culture, and really every culture, is obsessed with being successful, right? I don't know that I've met the person that wakes up and they just say, I do not want to be successful, I have no ambitions to succeed, and they may not want to succeed at the same things you do, but everyone, for the most part, seems to want to succeed, and, and there is a gap in our culture. We call it the failure to launch gap, but, but even those people still want to succeed. They still want to do something more, and the wisdom literature has a lot of guides to how to live your life successfully. If you, if you look in the Proverbs, if you're ever wondering, how should I live my life? How has God wired the universe? Look in the Proverbs. You'll find wisdom on how to be successful with your time, how to be successful in your relationships, how to be successful in business. There's a lot of good things in the Proverbs written by Solomon to be successful. And then if you're like me, um, the book of Psalms is one of my favorite books. Anyone love the book of Psalms? Okay, the, the reason I like the book of Psalms is because I feel like my heart is molded into that book because they're primarily the musings of the schizophrenic King David. I don't, I don't say that lightly, but he seems schizophrenic in the book because in one verse, he'll say something like, God, why are you so far from me? And then the following line, he'll say something like, I'm so grateful that you never forsake me. And I resonate with that. I don't know if you resonate with that, but I find peace that God had a king that was tormented and saying, God, you're so far, you're so close, you're so far, you're so close, help me, help me, help me. And God said, oh, I like that song, print it, publish it for eternity so that I could read it and just weep in my room saying, there's someone like me. That's the Psalms. The Song of Songs, I, I hinted at, it's that book about sex and it it's goes very graphic. Young Hebrew boys aren't even allowed to read it until they reach a certain age, until they have their bar mitzvah. They're not supposed to read that book. And if you read it, you will find out why. Uh, only if you know Jewish poetry and history and, and language. It is a crazy, crazy book. And I'll never forget the first time that I studied it because the youth pastor said there was the whole book about sex. My, my best friend and I in youth group discovered out which book it was. And when you go to the Song of Songs, it has he and then a spoken part, and then she, and then a spoken part, but we were two he's. So we said, how, how are we going to do this? <laughs> so we both puffed up our chests, and I was bigger, so he had to read all the she parts, <laughs> and we studied that book. And now we come to Ecclesiastes. Man, Ecclesiastes, whew, it is a book that is going to bring us down, but but before we jump all the way in, we've got to know what it's contrasting with. So who in here has read the book of Job? Okay, Job had what we'll call a bad couple of days. And, and for those of you who don't know, I just need to give you the quick recap. So basically, Satan is approaching God, 
and he's looking around for some mischief to do. And, and before we fall into this trap, because many, 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 many people in our culture, in our church culture, in our culture at large, they have this view that, that God and Satan are somehow duking it out. It's, this, it's called dualist, dualism. And the Satan is like, I'll jab God once, and God's like, I'll jab Satan. But this is not the case, and Job bears this out. Satan comes up and, and wants to cause some mischief. And they're having what seems to be a conversation. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, this is up in the heavens. I'm sure if Job could hear the conversation, he'd be like, I'm okay, Lord. Just move along. Walk on by, Lord. I'm good. But no, God had a different plan. And, and Satan said, can, are you kidding me? God, I can't, I can't bother Job. He's got everything. You've so put a hedge around him that I can't even touch him. And you have to know that Satan's like that. It's not that he can jab at God and God's like, oh, oh, you caught me off guard. Satan is a little runt pawn that comes up to God and says, hey, God, can I bother him? And God's like, oh, fine, just this once. So Satan goes down, and the account is, is traumatizing. Job gets a message from one of his servants that says, hey, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding, the Sabaeans came in and they stole all of them. And then right before that servant finished talking, another servant comes up, and that servant says, Hey, um, Job, while, while I was there tending the fields with your flocks, fire came down from heaven and consumed them all. Now, this is turning into a really bad day. Like, it, it's okay in one sense when someone steals from you because you can blame them, sue them, prosecute them. But when stuff starts falling out of the sky and eating up your property, in Florida we call that a hurricane, then it's a really bad day, right? Because you, you have no one to blame. You're like, hmm, Sandy. That's all you got. You can't, you can't point your finger. You can't sue the hurricane. And this is what's happening to Job. But then before, before that servant ends, it gets so much worse. Another servant comes and it says, hey, Job, all of your kids were having lunch with your, with your oldest sibling. And the, the wind came and it knocked them down, crushed your, your kids, and they all died in one day. So some, some of you have had a bad day. Some of you have had a bad day, but probably not this level. At, at which point, Job tore his robe, and he said the very famous line, whether you're a Christian or not, you've heard this line, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job goes straight to worship in the midst of all this. And God and Satan are up in their conversation Satan looks over at God because Job's still worshiping, and, and God says, ha, 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 That's a paraphrase. That's what he said to Satan. And Satan said, it's not fair. You didn't let me take his health. And God says, fine, you take his health, but don't take his life because it's this pawn relationship. So Satan gives him boils. He's sitting in the trash heap with boils. Everything is gone. And then his wife comes up, and his wife as Job is still trying to press into God, his wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? To which Job replied to God, give me back the camels and take the woman. No, he didn't say that. I made that up. I made that up. I love you. I made that up. Job was, Job was the example of when things go bad, that God is still there Ecclesiastes is the other side of that coin. Ecclesiastes is the King Solomon saying, I'm going to do an experiment where I press into all this life has to offer. 
and I'm going to find it meaningless. So let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen if you'd like to follow along. We're going to read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little, just like in Colossians. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 right now. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who is this son of David, king in Jerusalem? Starts with the S, rhymes with the Alleman. Okay, just making sure you're with me. Vanity of vanities. Some of your Bibles might say meaningless, meaningless. Vanity of vanities. The same thing. It's the Greek, it's the Hebrew word hebel, used 38 times in this book. And, and they didn't want to put meaningless in this translation because it's hard to say meaningless of meaninglessnessness, which would be the literal translation. So they put vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So we're starting out in a very chipper pick-me-up book. Now, I know some of you are in the business world, and most of us have seen those inspiring posters and pictures, right? The ones that say, teamwork, work together, we can conquer anything hand in hand. Or the ones that say, every great journey or the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. I made a meme this last week because I thought it was funny. I put, the journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly, and I had a picture of a sinking ship because I think we... We're so prone to this, like, pick-me-up, Jolly Rancher, bubblegum type of life that sometimes we forget the gravity of tragic situations. And Solomon here is setting out to teach us something. He's saying, these are the words of the preacher. I'm here to teach. I'm not just here to, to tell you about my life. This isn't just a biography. I want to teach you something. And then he kicks into it, and this is the bookend. Vanity of vanities. Everything is meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless. And if you ask Solomon, well, Solomon, what exactly is meaningless? Everything. Marriage is meaningless. Pleasure is meaningless. This guy is such a Debbie Downer, but we're going to get to this. Let's, let's just keep reading because we want to hear how sad this guy really gets. Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain by all the toil? So we go to work, we toil, we get a paycheck, and then we start over again. And Solomon has gotten to this place in life where he's just saying, what, what gain is there? I can toil or I cannot toil. I'll tell you one of the hardest times it was for me to toil. That at one point I lived in the island of Hawaii, the big island, and I was working. I was working in the school district teaching. I was working at a restaurant as a server. And then I would sit there at, at my serving job. There was this beach right in the bay. And as I would look down, there'd be the same guys every single day sitting there. They'd be eating fruit they picked on the side of the road. They'd be smoking something that didn't smell like cigarettes. They had dreads. They were having the greatest time, the best tans of their life. They were pre-leather tan, but post-fake tan. And they just sat there. And they would go in the water. They'd come out. And I'm sitting here working and working and working. And they're just there with mango juice dripping down their face, drinking coconuts. I'm like, what is going on? I, I felt a little bit of this. What do I gain by all this toil? I, I'm going to make money and then it's just all going to disappear. Everything is meaningless. Our, our lives are meaningless. Solomon wants to hit us with this reality that, hey, life is meaningless. Life stinks. Life is vain. And we're going to keep reading. It's only going to get worse. If you're not getting depressed yet, just wait. The Bible's coming for you. A generation goes, verse 4 says, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. 
The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. Verse 7, all streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. Solomon is just saying, we keep going around and around and around. I felt the wind yesterday. Life is just this big repetition. A generation comes, a generation goes. And life keeps going and nothing changes. Why can't this get any better? At this point, I, when I'm reading the first chapter, I always feel bad for him. He's, he's whining so much. I just want to hug him and say, it's going to be okay. <laughs> You'll pull through. But he would just say, vanity, your hug is vanity. There's going to be no remembrance. A generation comes and a generation goes. It, this is, I love this. So some people are into family trees. How many of you know the name of your great, 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 great grandfather? Nobody. You? Great, 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 great grandfather? Okay. Well, one person out of like 170. <laughs> Proves my point almost. How many of you know just the name of your great, great, great Grandfather. So your, your grandpa's grandpa's dad. Right? A couple of you. Four of you. Man, and that's a short time. That's less than 100 years, give or take. 100 years, 120 years. I'm going to be a vapor mist of forgottenness. The world's going to keep going on. The sun will keep rising and setting long after we are all gone. I go to, to grave sites oftentimes to journal, and so often I just see these graves that look very much abandoned because a generation comes and a generation goes the sun keeps going around in the same circle but life is vanity solomon wants us to feel the weight of that that even though the wind blows it's going to blow again the cycle of life is painful right we do we feel the weight of that i, I have to get my hair cut all the time like every month it grows again I know I shouldn't complain, but it keeps doing it. I mowed my grass just two days ago, and I mowed it the week before. This next month, guess what I have to do again? I have to pay bills again. Like, why can't I just pay them once for all and be done with it? But again, my mortgage is going to come. Again, I'm going to have to fill out my gas tank. Again, this cycle of life keeps tormenting us, and there's got to be something more. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. So in this cycle of life, it, it gets kind of crazy. So I just want to play a quick game, and then we're going to go to this concept of under the sun. The reason why the sermon series is called Rise Above is because we have to rise above our perspective of life only being under the sun. But, but I want to take this cycle. So Monday is coming really, really fast. Some of you love Mondays. Those of you that love Mondays, you need therapy, okay? Because here's what happens on Monday for most of us, right? We wake up. We get dressed. We head into work. We have to go buy Starbucks because God knows you're not an American unless you get a Starbucks. You get the same drink, right, every day. You barely ever venture out. You might venture out if you're one of those weird Floridians that likes the fall drinks in September. 
I, I saw you last year in September. It's 100 degrees, and I saw girls walking into Starbucks with Ugg boots, ordering hot pumpkin lattes. I'm like, okay, A, you're mental. It's 100 degrees out. B, pumpkin lattes are not that good. Notice how you only heard girls say, what? What? There was no guy in the audience like, hey, I love pumpkin lattes with Ugg boots. <laughs> this just didn't happen. And then when you go to work and you work, you type at your desk, tick, 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 email, email, email. And then you go to lunch, maybe with friends. Then you go home. And on your way home, you'll think to yourself, hey, I, I should probably go to the gym. Then you won't. Because who does that? It's, it's way past February. Resolution's gone. Go home, hang out with your kids, hang out with your wife. Hey, babe, hey, babe, hey, kids, hey, kids. Mm, lightsaber fight, mm, Netflix, mm, go, go to bed. Wake up Tuesday. What do you do? You wake up, go to Starbucks, Ugg boots, pumpkin spice latte, go to work, lunch with friends, go home, skip the gym, see kids, lightsaber fight, Netflix, wife, spouse, husband, go to bed, boom, boom, boom. What do you do with? Same thing. It's now, if you just stop and think about how insane this is, you're going to, you know, I hope, here's my fear. My fear is that if I say that everything's meaningless, that some of you guys are going to take it to heart. Like, I don't want you to take this all the way to heart because the book has a purpose and a trajectory. Because in my head, I can see some of the husbands in here just, just got an empty tray of Oreos in their chest, a couple empty PBR cans next to them, and the wife's like, mow the lawn. No, why? It's meaningless. Didn't you hear the pastor? My favorite message of the year. It's all meaningless. But wait, we're, we're going somewhere. God's got something for us. All of this cycle, and then, and then he wants to just drive it home one more time. He says, is there, is there a thing which it has said, see, this is new? Because here's what we try to do to calm this cycle, to get out of this cycle, to feel like we're not stuck in this endless repeating loop like a vinyl scratched record. We, we get for ourselves what we think of as new things. We call them trinkets. We gather for ourselves trinkets, and let's be honest, trinkets have an emotional effect on all of us. The reason I know this is because we're in a very affluent area. We, we are constantly on search for the new thing, whatever it is. It could be a new phone, could be the new car, could be the new house. Unfortunately, it could be the new husband, could be the new wife. And we think that the next new thing is going to give us the, the sense of not missing whatever's missing in our lives. Because we all know that something is broken and missing. And we're all trying to feed that chasm with trinkets, with stuff with new this, new that, new vacations, new boats, new houses, and none of it ever does, so we trade it in for the next one. And it starts when we're this big. As a, as a seven-year-old son, my oldest son, we started collecting Pokemon cards, and then he wanted something called Yu-Gi-Oh cards, and then he wanted something called Skylander cards, at which I just drew the line. I said, I'm trading paper that's worth something for paper that's worth nothing. I'm trading dollars for cardboard cards. But daddy, all my friends have it. And then I tell them, the Pokemon cards didn't make you happy for long. What's the Yu-Gi-Oh cards? You forgot about those? You left those at your friend's house. They're still at your house. He doesn't care. Burn them. He won't care. He won't know. He wants Skylander cards. And you're, well, we, we don't do that as adults, Ryan. Oh, no. Oh, oh, oh. We'll see when the iPhone 7 comes out. Because you know what I see every time a new phone comes out? We, we, and this is me. This is my sin. I love new phones. My, ooh, I gotta get my apps on it. And when the new phone comes out, I mean, I don't really care to know what time it is most of the day. 
But if I'm around people, I'll be like, let me see what time it is on my $700 clock. Cling. Everyone see this? It's a new iPhone. I've got apps. Do you have apps? Do you have this app? Do you have this app? That app? Because it's new. Uh, some of us get the cars. We just love the car. I get it. I love cars. Some of us trade them in, and we have this momentary lapse where that we think this thing is new. It will give us some satisfaction, and eventually it fades, which is why none of us are driving for the most part unless you're younger, our first cars. Because we couldn't wait to get out of having that 1984 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. That was my first car. I was the envy of all the gangbangers. I had a house speaker wired up in the back. I paid, 500, I paid $500 for my first car. It had uh, a cassette player with the wire that went to my Sony Walkman disc player. I mean, I rolled hard. I almost bought a sticker on the back in my cursive that said the love machine, but then Jesus saved me, so I didn't. Everything is cyclical. Everything is cycle. There's nothing new under the sun. But then you'll say, no, no, there's something new. Ryan, I, uh, I got this new, this new phone. It has a new feature. It's new. I oh, know it's not. Here, here's what your phone does. Even the smartest of smartphones, you can communicate with people, which we could do before phones, right? I know you might have forgotten we used to just use our mouth or pens and pencils and paper, but now we use phone. It's okay. I'm a phone guy. And oh, well, right. I've got a, I've got a calendar. It, it is incredible. It tells me exactly when I've got to be somewhere, uh, to which I usually reply, you should probably use it. But they had calendars before for thousands of years. Well, you know, I've got GPS. You know, the emperors of Rome, they did not have GPS. Nope. They had slaves that stood around their cart, looked at the stars, and dragged them to places based on the stars. It was the original gangster of GPSs, right? Those guys are like, Google? Uh, we invented Google in our brain. And they just walked. Nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Everything is vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless. The trinkets will not satisfy you for long. There's got to be something more. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who, co uh, who come after. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So Solomon's going to do an experiment that we can't do. And I need you to hear me. Solomon was the richest person who likely ever lived. The wisest person who ever lived apart from Jesus himself. When, when God went to Solomon and said, what do you want? Solomon didn't say wealth. He didn't say power. He said wisdom. And God said, because you asked for wisdom, I'm also going to give you the other things. So he is more wealthy than you and I will ever be. He is more powerful than you and I will ever be. He is more educated in every way than anyone in this room. Harvard education, Yale, it doesn't matter, Stanford. He is beyond because from the earliest age and from divine gifting, he had these things. And Solomon says, I am going to run a little experiment. I'm going to press into everything of life with my five senses. I'm going to see what I, I'm going to use my eyes and my ears and my nose and my taste and my touch. And I want to experience all life has to offer so that I can find out what life is about. And that's how he came up with this book. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is vanity. He says, going on, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all vanity, 
all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Man, this guy is the biggest Debbie Downer. Now, he's going to take us through some examples. He's going to take us through wealth. He's going to take us through religion. He's going to take us through friendship. And he wants to systematically show us that, that the things that you are looking for to satisfy you, to give your life meaning, they won't really last. There's got to be something more. Now, it, it, it's hard, you guys, to, to take this to heart. And I know some of you are thinking, I thought I was going to come have a good day at church. This is the most depressing thing I've ever heard. I'm never coming here again. Don't worry. I mean, worry, because it can be depressing. But don't worry, because there's an answer that will finally help you rise above life under the sun. And the key to it is right here. Solomon saying, everything is vanity. Everything is striving after the wind. What's crooked cannot be made straight. What's lacking cannot be counted. He's saying that there's a hole that has to be filled. There's something that's broken. Now, in the church, we call that sin. And if you're new, you might be thinking, oh, I knew it. Pastor's got to come to sin eventually. Bring on the brimstone. I'm not going to bring on the brimstone. I'm going to use a definition from a person I really like named Soren Kierkegaard. Don't read everything he writes because the guy goes crazy sometimes, but I love this. Sin is building your self-worth on anything other than God. And you've heard me say it like this. When you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, that's a very, very bad thing. And that could be anything. See, that God gets a bad rap. God gets a very, very bad rap in our culture. Like he's this big, angry miser who wants to suck the fun out of life. He sees fun and he says, oh, I don't like this fun. This is my fun dar. I'm taking it out. Everything you like, I want it for me. I want it for something else. Get it away from you. And unfortunately, he's getting a bad rap because God created the most amazing, fun things in the world. God created sunsets, which thrill my soul. God created pleasure. God created taste buds. God said, you know what we're going to do with this human being? We're going to make it so when they lick ice cream with the tip of their tongue, the flavor of coconut will fire into their neurons and they will have the biggest smile on their face. God did that. So that now next time you go get coconut ice cream and lick it with the tip of your tongue, you'll get a big smile on your face. You know what God made? And this blows my mind. If you grew up in the church, I don't know if it will blow your mind as much, but God made sex. He made it. It's his idea. He wrote a book about it. And Solomon is going to show us to the extent, when I say Solomon set out on an experiment, he had 300 wives, 700 concubines. There was not like a hair type, hair color, eye color personality that he probably didn't have some relationship with. That was his experiment. But God, God made it for a different purpose. And some of us think, well, no, you know, so you don't tell people that God made sex because then they, go, might enjoy, they might go enjoy it. Well, they might. They might. You know the whole birds and the bees topic? I, I've got a seven-year-old. The average age of exposure to pornography for young boys today is eight years old. So if you've got a six, seven-year-old, it's time to start thinking, how do, I, how do I prepare them so that they know how to view sexuality and, and women and men rightfully? This is the world we live in. In the church, we just said, nah, we're just not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about sex. We're going to let it be the world's thing. And God said, no, 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 no. I made that. That was my idea. Like Legos were not your idea, my idea. So you 
you teach people what a healthy view of sexuality is. Now Solomon did not have a healthy sexual lifestyle because he was doing this experiment. He was trying to find meaning in everything under the sun. He said in my heart, verse 16, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So here's what he's saying. I, I went the smart route. I studied. I knew everything. And for those of you, let's just say, okay, our affluent area, we have different hobbies than people of other areas. So I've lived in the spectrum. I've had the poor, I've lived the poor side of life, and then I've lived on like what I'll call the middle class, and I kind of peekaboo over the fence at the upper middle class sometimes. You know, if I have two jobs, I'm like, oh, look at it over there. It's so nice. The grass is still green. When I grew up, there was none of that. So I've seen the both. And Solomon said, yeah, I went, I went highbrow. I, I wanted to apply myself, so I got the education. I had all the knowledge. I had everything going for me. And guess what? I found out that it was still folly. I mean, I did it all. I golfed. I mean, you, some of you guys golf so much. It's incredible. I golfed just enough to be terrible because I was terrible before I golfed, and I can't golf enough to not be terrible. There's, do you know there's sports where people ride on a horse and they have a giant croquet mallet and they hit the ball? What's it called again? Polo? Not water polo. That's how I grew up. Polo. I mean, how much money do you have to have before you start thinking of the weirdest sports in the world? Oh, we've been like in croquet, but we uh, have $10 million. I got it. Let's make teams of horse riders with helmets who have giant croquet mallets and hit balls on giant fields worth millions of dollars. Sounds like a plan. Solomon said, yeah, I did that, meaningless. But then I love the next part. <laughs> and he applied himself to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And we're going to really dive into this next week because he, he dove into madness and folly and he perceived that this is also but a striving after the wind. Because here's what the, the tendency is in our lives. The tendency is that we look at what someone else has and they have it better. If I could only have a little bit more money, if I could just live on this side of the tracks, if I could just get into this school district, and, and that's what the people on the, the, the lower brow end are struggling with, right? They're, if I could just get a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, while on the other side, the people who have a massive amount of wealth, the stress of their life is, I wish life were just more simple. And I've sat and talked with these people face to face. Uh, you are a multi, 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 multi-millionaire. Just give me a little sliver. And he's saying, just give me a little slice of the simple, simplistic life. And I'm like, no, no, I, I think money will be easier. And he goes, no, no, no. And one of the things I, I really don't like about Christian men material is that they try to simplify everything for men. They're like, oh, you know, you know what's wrong with your life? You just got to go out into the woods and they chew tobacco and kill an animal. And then you'll be close with God. I'm like, really? That's all it takes? No, it's something more. There's something more than just simplifying life, and there's got to be something more than constantly wanting what we don't have under the sun. So Solomon says, I, I did the highbrow. I did the rich thing. I did the wise thing. I did the schooling. I did all that. And then I found out that was vanity, so I went just madness. I stopped eating caviar and sushi. I started eating mac and cheese with sliced up hot dogs. I stopped drinking the fine wine and the Cristal. I went and hung out with my buddies. We cleared out 12 packs of PBR in Old Milwaukee and Yingling. I mean, we went to a polo game over here. That was meaningless. So I thought maybe if I go to a NASCAR thing over here, nope, meaningless. I mean, NASCAR, really? A sport? Don't email me about that either. Nobody, I don't want one person to Facebook me. NASCAR is a sport. 
Really? Literally just turn left all day. I'm an athlete. Done. He did both. And he said, it's all striving after the wind. Uh, I could... I could be here, it's vanity. I could be here, it's vanity. And he's leaving us in a very dark place, church family. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. If you have a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom, you'll just be stressed out. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow, sadness, stress, wanting something more, trying to fill the gaps of your life with things under the sun. There's something that has to change. It's not about the trinkets. It's not about the inspirational posters that we can put up on our wall to make us feel like our life's worth something more than it is. And I know there's that type A person here, and you're like, I'm the exception to every rule, Pastor. I will leave my mark in this world forever. No, you won't. You'll die. And you might have someone, you might have one in 175 people that will say, I remember their name 120 years from now, 150 years from now. Just the name. There's something that has to be beyond the sun. There's something that we have to rise above to see. Because if all life is, is what is under the sun, then it is vanity, vanity. It is meaningless. It is an endless cycle. It's like running on a treadmill and getting all sweaty and not having gone anywhere. You may have got your heart rate up a little bit, but you didn't go anywhere. You ran in place, you stared at the same wall or TV, and then you were done. And so often that's what life is like until we can acquire and understand the sixth sense that God gives us. And I'm not talking about seeing dead people. The sixth sense in this series, we're gonna call it faith. Faith that there is something beyond the sun. Faith that in the midst of this cyclical, nothing new, meaningless vanity of vanity life where nothing satisfies, whether it's the highbrow or the lowbrow, the polo or the NASCAR, the caviar or the mac and cheese with Hebrew national hot dogs, there's something called faith that is a gift to you and I because someone from beyond the sun came to earth so that we could have life and have it to the fullest. When Jesus came to give you life and to give me life, he didn't do it so that we could simply sit in a monastery and and chant chants. He wants us to see how faith changes every single area of our life, how faith changes the way we see our money, how faith changes the way we see our relationships, how faith changes the way we work. Because without something God-centered in the midst of our work and our families and, and our money, and our hobbies. It just becomes this endless cycle of trying to get new hobbies, new trinkets, new toys, until at last we can see that, no, God has created me and given me gifts for a grander purpose, to enjoy what he's given me, to enjoy the the money, and it doesn't have to be something that owns me anymore. Because money owns too many of us. We We can't give it away. We just gotta save it and hold it. And then when Christ comes in, money can just be money. You can, you can buy a house or not buy a house. You can buy a car or not buy a car. Give it away, not give it because it won't own you anymore because your life and your finances will be about God giving you gifts to enjoy his presence in this earth. 
and, he, and let him shape that. Or, or if it's your relationships, some of you are saying, well, yeah, my relationships, I just go from one person to one person to one person. And some of you don't do that. Some of you have been married for a long time. And there's this weird notion in, in the church that I've seen over the last 17 years of being a follower of Jesus and a pastor. It's that some people are in marriages and they're miserable. And they think the fact that they're staying in a miserable marriage makes them a great person. They're like, well, yeah, at least I'm not getting divorced. I'm like, yeah, at least your wife, your husband hates you. There's nothing noble about this. How about at least you're trying to make your wife love you again? We just did this thing uh, in our band of brothers on Saturday where we're having the men who come write out life plans about where they want to be in life and how they're going to get there. And it was amazing just to talk about that concept of saying, okay, if you're here and life is failing, what are you going to tangibly do to get here? And one of the things, women, that we always talk about whenever you're not around all of us men get together and we just talk about how much we love our wives. We just say the sweetest things about them. This is probably not true, but I'm trying to get all the guys' points. A lot of the guys, though, did say, like, I, I really want to work on my marriage. I want to work on being a father. So I said, okay, let's get very, very practical. How are we going to get from where you are today to where you want to be? And I'm talking, like, dishwash loading, foot rubbing, chore doing, diaper changing, laundry folding, practical. At which point all the men are like, no, stop now. Don't add any more. Lawn mowing, window cleaning, floor scrub. I'm sorry, I don't want to do that. <laughs> All the dads are like, that's why I had teenagers. Well, what are you going to do practically to begin to look and rise above seeing life under the sun? You've got to raise your eyes up and say, okay, God, I need this thing called faith, and I need it to reshape everything. I need to see how Jesus comes into and makes life not an endless cycle of vanity. That's the call for you guys today. I would hope that um, some of you here would, would be honest with yourselves. And I'm not going to pretend that everyone will be. It is so easy to not be honest with ourselves. It's so easy to say, well, I'll just go on one more trip, one more vacation, one more hotel, one more car, one more house, one more wife, one more husband, one more whatever. But if you could step back for a moment and then and just ask yourself, is my life an endless cycle? And, I, and Jesus has just been this person that's right outside of the orb of my life, but I haven't brought him into the midst of everything. Because until you get Christ in the center, until you realize that he came from beyond the sun to enter into all of your life, not just your Sunday morning, not just your small group Bible study, not just, not just five minutes in your Bible app a day, he came in to change and shape all of your life by giving you his Holy Spirit. Until you get to that point, you're going to be endlessly running on that treadmill and endlessly grasping for new things to satisfy your soul and endlessly falling short and wondering, why can I never find the happiness and joy and peace? Because new trinkets will only satisfy for so long. Nothing is new under the sun. Nothing will satisfy you for long. It will come to you with great joy and leave with brevity and joy as well at times. They say the greatest day of a boat, the greatest two days of a boat owner's life are the day they buy it and the day they sell it. I don't know if that's true, but I, I'd imagine that in some sense, not having to scrub the same old boat again is pretty relieving. Too many of us have not let Jesus in to our whole life. Too many of us are denying 
faith in the areas of our life where we already know God is knocking down the door. So will you let him in today? That's a simple question. I'm going to pray and we're going to take the offering and I, I want you to think about it as Jared is singing this song about where you have not brought faith into your life. And some of you here may not even be followers of Jesus. You may be here for the first time thinking, I thought church was an uplifting place. Man, this was a Debbie Downer. Jesus has good news for you, that he came to live for you, to die for your sins, to rise again. Some of you are in here and you've been playing the church game and you, you want Jesus in some parts of your life but not the others. I, I exhort you, I encourage you, let him in to all the areas of your life and pray and ask for his forgiveness for those endless runs that you've been taking on the treadmill of trinkets and the treadmill of this cyclical vanity of vanity life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, it is, uh, it is so easy for me to read this and just want to want to give up life is so vain but then when I get to the end of this book every time I read it Lord I see that you have a cosmic powerful plan I see that you sent your son Jesus to come from beyond the Sun to give us hope to give us faith to give us the helper that will lead us through and make sense and give meaning to all of this world's pleasures and trials and trinkets. So I pray for those who have been running on that treadmill and feel exhausted that, that faith would break in, that you would open eyes to see, that you would help us all be honest with ourselves and cling to you instead of clinging to these things that will one day be destroyed or rust or break or be sold. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Amen.